You don't know flag. You Don't Know Flat, a podcast full of stories about retro gaming, retro computing, video games, arcade games, and technology from a guy who was there and still is. My name is Rob O'Hara, but for the next 30 minutes, you can call me Flat. Greetings and salutations, listeners, and welcome to episode 219 of You Don't Know Flack. I am your host, Rob Flack O'Hara, and on today's episode, we will be talking about destroying data. Now, I know most of us in this hobby spend a lot of time thinking about how to save and preserve data, so this topic will be the flip side of that coin. Now, uh, unfortunately, I wrote down all my notes on a hard drive and then promptly destroyed it. So while I search around my office for a hard copy of those notes, we'll have a few minutes to chat on this week's loading time. Loading time. Loading time. Loading time. Welcome back to another episode of You Don't Know Flag. Uh, I promised that I would not talk about my van life project on this podcast, but uh, I got to be honest, that's what I have spent the majority of the past week working on. My buddy Jeff has come over. We've uh, replaced door handles that weren't working. I've been using a power washer to clean the inside floor of the van. Now, uh, none of those are technical issues. This podcast has always... Uh, it was, uh, I won't say always, but it started out as being a technical uh, podcast. So I thought I would spend a few minutes and talk about the stereo that I just installed into the van. Now, this van has plenty of problems. It needs paint, uh, especially on the inside. It needs some interior work. It needs all the woodworking. It needs uh, a million things. And really, the last thing it needs at the moment is a new stereo. But... I was at a point where I just had a few days before I leave on a trip. I'll be talking about that in just a moment. And we were looking for a quick win. So I said, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and look for a replacement stereo and install a stereo in the van. The van came with an AM FM radio, not even a measly cassette deck. So uh, there was no way to play cassettes. There was no way to play CDs, but more importantly, no way to play Bluetooth <laughs> from my phone. So out came the AM FM radio. I went to Amazon and looked for replacements and I found, um, well, I should, I should take this a step back. Uh, my daughter recently got a, uh, a new car, new car to her that needed a stereo. And so my kids went to Walmart and came home with a stereo. And I may have talked about this on a previous episode, but the stereo that goes into her dash is maybe an inch deep. Uh, it also does not play any sort of physical media. There's no CD drive in it. There's no slot for CDs or any kind of, um, you know, tapes, anything like that. It is strictly designed for streaming media from your phone. So uh, I would say ideally it would be for streaming Bluetooth from a phone that could be from uh, music that's on your phone or maybe from an app like Spotify or Pandora. 
Um, but the radio cost $25. I was just amazed. I had never seen anything like this. If you remember, uh, if you had car stereos maybe in the early 90s, uh, late 80s, early 90s, uh, you may remember the stereos with the removable faceplates. I thought they had just purchased a faceplate. I didn't realize it was the whole stereo. Obviously, it's a little bit thicker than that, but not much. So really... All I need in the van is the same thing. Now, the stereo opening in the dash in the van is uh, twice the size um, of the one in my daughter's car. Mine is a double-din stereo, and so I went on Amazon, looked for double-din uh, media stereo, and I found one. It was The one I purchased is from a Chinese company called Absoso. It was $92. With that, I got a stereo unit. I mean, I don't know if you're supposed to call it a stereo. It is a radio. Uh, it's not a, it doesn't play CDs or anything like that, but I, I suppose the fact that it plays music, you could still uh, call it a stereo. It has Bluetooth capability. It has a USB port directly on the front of the radio. It also has a micro SD slot right on the front of the radio and the it is a double din it is a seven inch screen from the usb or the sd card or actually from your phone you can play videos so you can put videos on a usb stick and watch movies now uh, one of the things i learned is that the name brand stereos like Sony and JVC and Jensen, uh, they all have technology designed to lock you out from watching videos while you're driving, which number one is probably a really good idea. And number two, in most states, many states, most states, it is not legal to watch television while you're driving, which again falls under good idea. Um, that's not really part of the consideration from radios that come from China. <laughs> I don't think they care. Uh, and as I was playing around with this one, you can plug a USB stick into the dash and it will immediately start playing videos while you're doing 65 miles an hour down the interstate. It just doesn't care about that. Um, so some of the other features, number one, it came with a um, backup camera. Uh, this required a lot more installation and a lot more work than I thought it would. I was hoping that the backup camera would also be Bluetooth. So we would just need to get it power and hook it up to the back. But that really wasn't the case. Um, we had to, it came with a 20 foot AV cable, but 20 foot was not long enough <laughs> when you own a cargo van. Uh, by the time you run it behind your dash and down to the floor and underneath paneling and up the wall and down all the way to the back. So we had to create an extension for the AV cable. We also learned that uh, if you power the camera, uh, basically the way that the rear view camera works is that the minute it gets power, it overtakes the radio screen and switches to the camera's video input. So uh, the way and, and the instructions that came with this were so terrible. Uh, I made a YouTube video uh, reviewing this stereo, but essentially what I said was the instruction manual and the owner's manual both were written in Chinese, translated to English, and may possibly be for the wrong stereo. <laughs> that was my joke. Uh, they weren't very useful. They don't have any information, in fact, about the rear view camera. So we had to figure that out on our own. 
Fortunately, Jeff is an electronics whiz. Uh, we watched some YouTube videos, and essentially what we figured out is uh, you don't hook 12-volt hot to the camera from the front of the van. You wire it in the rear of the van to your backup lights. So when you put the van in reverse, the backup lights come on, they get 12 volts, it sends 12 volts to the camera, the camera turns on, and on your stereo in the front of the van, it switches to the backup camera. So everything is now working. Uh, it It's, I mean, I'm amazed at how much technology. It came with a remote. Um, I don't... I never really understand that. Like, I've never been so far away from my <laughs> core stereo where I'm like, man, I wish I had a remote to turn that up. Uh, but in a van, I mean, it's possible. Maybe I could be in the back seat and I would have the, the radio playing or something. I don't know. But um, yeah, it did come with a remote. It came with a little Bluetooth controller that's designed to attach to the steering wheel to add steering wheel controls. Um, I mean, so you get a lot of stuff for $92. I would say what you don't get, number one, are instructions that really make sense. So if you're the type of person you haven't installed a lot of car stereos, if you're not willing to, we used a voltmeter to figure out what some of the wires, whether they were hot or not, what was going on. Uh, so, and we've installed a lot of car stereos over the years. So it was a little bit of a learning curve for us, especially with the backup camera. It was just something we had never hooked up before technology we'd never played with. So that part of it was a bit, uh, again, we, uh, you know, learning curve. Um, the other problem with the radio is that it is larger than a standard double din radio. So it is larger than the hole that was in my dash. So we took a Dremel <laughs> because it's the van and we cut out the bottom part uh, of the radio. Uh, I don't know what you would call it, the mounting hole in the dash and the radio is still too large. So the radio sticks up about a quarter of an inch, but this thing was probably three quarters of an inch too tall to fit into a standard double din uh, installation hole. So uh, if I were going to put it into a regular car, something that I really wanted it to look nice and stock, I don't know that I could recommend this. But uh, but again, it was amazing just seeing how much technology that you get for $92. Um, you know, I as a kid, I know I spent $100 or more on, on cassette players that literally, um, you know, you could listen to the radio or play a cassette. On this, I was driving around with cartoons of Dungeons and Dragons <laughs> playing in the dash while I was messing with the YouTube uh, link up from my phone and everything else. So uh, it's pretty amazing what you could get for that money. Now, unfortunately, I have a road trip coming up this weekend. And I won't be taking the van. There was a part in the back of my head that thought maybe I could get stuff done, but no way. It's taken me way longer uh, to do projects on the van than I thought it was going to. So I mean, the van might might not be done by the fall. Who knows? I'm hoping it is. Um, but uh, where am I going? I'm going to Boat Fest. Now, if you are familiar with the Amigos podcast, it is hosted by Amigo Aaron and Boat of Car. That is John Boat of Car Schaller. Uh, I guess 
after boat attended uh, Amigo or Amiga Ireland, it was a, a um, Amiga conference that was in Ireland. Uh, it kind of became a running joke that he would run Boat Fest, and the running joke has turned into a reality. So Boat is hosting a retro computer, retro gaming gathering. Uh, the two hosts, along with the Brent, who is Amigo Aaron's brother, are throwing this shindig in Hurricane, West Virginia. So that is um, a little over a 12-hour drive from me. So I will be leaving my house on Wednesday. My wife and I are driving to Branson, Missouri on Wednesday and uh, Thursday morning. The at right around the time this podcast is released, we will be leaving Branson and heading to Hurricane West Virginia. So, uh, it will be a three day fest Friday, Saturday, Sunday. If you want to follow what's going on at the fest, I think they have uh, some things set up like on, on their um, probably the Amigos Retro Gaming YouTube page would be a good place. But uh, if you need links to things, follow me on Twitter. My account is Commodore. On Twitter, and so as things are going on or as there's updates, uh, I will try to post those things on Twitter. Uh, I'll be posting pictures throughout the weekend, uh, so all that stuff will go on Twitter. And uh, I will also be streaming off and on from the convention. Uh, and so my uh, streaming website is twitch.tv forward slash Rob O'Hara. That's R-O-B-O-H-A-R-A. So if you want to see what's going on at the convention, people coming by, well, you know, I, I don't really know. Uh, this is literally a playing it by ear type of situation, but that's my plan. I'm going to take a Commodore. I'm going to take uh, my CD32. Uh, maybe a couple other things, set up some stuff for people to game and have a good time. So uh, I'm I'm really looking forward to the weekend. I'm looking forward to meeting uh, some of you. I think some of the listeners to this show and to the Amigos uh, podcast are coming. Some of the other podcasters are coming. So I think it's going to be a really fun weekend. So like I said, by the time you're listening to this, I will be in the car on my way to Boat Fest. So that will be uh, quite the adventure. If you have feedback about this or any episode of the show, you can always email me directly at Rob O'Hara at RobOHara.com. Join the conversation on Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash Robcast. Follow me on Twitter at Commodore. Come chat with me on the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord or leave me a message on the podcast hotline, which is area code 405-486-YDKF. If you'd like to support my shows, visit my Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara. All of my patrons get access to behind-the-scenes blog posts, weekly videos, access to the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord server, and other additional perks. To find out more, visit my page. Again, that's patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara. How silly of me. I had a hard copy of the show's notes right here under my keyboard, right where I keep all my passwords. So uh, with these notes in hand, let's get started talking about destruction of data. I did not buy a first generation Kindle, but when the second generation of Kindle came out, I bought one and I didn't love the technology. I love the idea of the technology. I do like the e-ink screens. Uh, they're easier to read, if, especially if you're reading outdoors, but uh, I didn't like 
that I couldn't send every uh, ebook format to the Kindle. I didn't, uh, there were, there were just several things I didn't like about it. And so I ended up replacing my Kindle with a first edition of the iPad. So I bought an actual iPad one, uh, bought it new and I used the heck out of that iPad. I used to, uh, watch videos on it. I, I checked my email on it. I did all these things. And then what began to happen was, uh, applications stopped working. The very first one I remember that stopped working was CNN. I remember pressing the CNN icon and the app tried to open and it said, uh, this application is not supported on this level uh, or this version of iOS. You need to upgrade iOS on this device. Well, I already knew that there were no more iOS updates available for that iPad. So I went to settings. I tried to update iOS and it said, you know, no updates available, or there was a new version that said not supported on this version of your iPad. And so I got caught in a loop. I couldn't upgrade the iOS. I couldn't upgrade the app. And then that was it. I could never use CNN on that iPad again. And immediately the first time that happened, I knew it was the beginning of the end because I couldn't soon. I couldn't access YouTube. I couldn't access uh, Facebook. I couldn't access basically anything. Uh, and I had VLC, uh, which is, uh, you're probably familiar the video player. And I was able to stream videos from my server to the iPad. But at one point I think VLC updated and it even stopped working. So I was down to, Zero apps, no apps worked on the iPad and I threw it in a drawer and I forgot about it. The battery died. Um, and I would always, I always waited be, you know, I hung on to it because I thought maybe someday there'll be a project or, uh, some, somebody will come up with a use for this old iPad. I could use the screen for something and I, it never happened. I never came up with a use for it. And so one day, uh, I was cleaning up my room. I was taking a bunch of stuff to Goodwill. I threw it in a box with a bunch of uh, DVDs and, and uh, other, you know, videotapes, things like that, and took it to Goodwill, dropped it off, and on the way home, I thought to myself, I wonder if I took my data off that iPad. I wonder if I did a factory reset at any time, and I don't think I did. Now, most of those apps, almost none of the apps worked. But I got a feeling that maybe the email app still worked. <laughs> and based on that, I would have had my email credentials in that iPad. I lost sleep for a week. I actually went back up to Goodwill and they said, no, it was, it was already gone. It had been shipped off somewhere else. And so I lost control of the device. I mean, once, once I handed it off, that was it. Uh, because all I wanted to do was was wipe it, you know, but um, there was no way to do that. And it literally made me sick to my stomach. Uh, what an amateur move. I should have known better. Uh, I've been doing this stuff for a long time, and it was just, I just didn't think about it. So when it comes to getting rid of electronic devices that store our information. This could be disks. This could be computers. This could be anything. Lots of things we're going to talk about. Uh, I used to categorize those into three levels. So the first level was how much wiping do I need to do if I'm giving the device to one of my parents? Um, so 
it really has nothing to do with my parents per se. But when I say that, I'm thinking of someone who is my age or older, someone who has no interest in trying to recover the data and someone that wants to still try to use the device. So maybe this would be uh, selling it at a garage sale or something like that. And so like for a computer, for that level, that might have been reformatting the hard drive and reinstalling Windows or something like that, or maybe even just deleting my stuff off of a computer and <laughs> and, and and leaving the operating system on there. So that was my first uh, level of security. My second level are people that I refer to as being technical and curious. That's probably uh, what category I and many of you fall under. I had a device uh, console copier for the Nintendo 64 many years ago. I, when I say many years ago, I mean I still have it, but it uses zip disks. And so I would go to uh, thrift stores and look for zip disks because I didn't want to pay full price. I didn't need that many of them. And I bought a stack of zip disks from a thrift store when I came home. They contained... Uh, and accounting businesses complete backups. <laughs> it included all their customer data included. So I didn't have to delete or, you know, undelete or try to recover data or anything like that. It was just right there looking at me. Now, uh, I, of course, did the right thing, formatted all that stuff. Um, but uh, not everybody is uh, that honest or ethical. So, um there are ways to recover deleted files. There are applications out there that will help you uh, recover deleted. If you've ever accidentally deleted a, the wrong folder and and uh, it didn't go to the recycle bin on Windows for some reason, you had to actually recover files. Uh, you probably know that there's free software out there that will help you do that. So, um, you know, so, that, so there's that second level of uh, if I'm, you know, if I were going to, donate it or, or maybe give it to a school or something. I, I started to think that way, like technical and curious people. How would I wipe the data before I, I gave something and put that in that person's hands? Um, the third level when I think about getting rid of data or destroying data is how would I protect it from a three-letter agency or a foreign government? Now, the odds of any of those people being interested in any of my data or or wanting my data or knowing who I am are zero percent. Like, I don't uh, think that doing a podcast puts me on their radar uh, and, and I don't do anything in my private life to attract the attention of those people. But that is when I think about destroying data, I think what would be the level of, of destruction or erasure of the data that would keep it away from those people? Uh, and there are ways to do that. Um, but I said many years ago when I wrote uh, eCoder Ring, which was a more of a toy than a useful tool, but it was a way to encrypt messages and send encrypted messages back and forth. And I said at the time, because uh, it, it is essentially a one-time pad that two people have to know, uh, this, they have to be able to share the key uh, to be able to send messages back and forth. And I said, this will withstand the most brutal technical attack. It is unbreakable by a brute force computer attack. Uh, what it won't survive is 
if a foreign government takes your loved ones and starts waterboarding them. <laughs> I think most people at that point will give up the encryption key really quickly. Um, I don't know anything personally about it, but just from what I've seen uh, on television, it looks to be uh, rather unpleasant. So, um, you know, for to get to that third level of data destruction, it we'll talk about it, but it has to be more than just uh, uh, it has to be irrecoverable, not just by them, but by anyone. So let's go back. Let's take our little time machine and we're going back um, past the 2000s, the Y2K, past the 1990s and all the way back to the early 1980s and maybe even the late 1970s. We got our TRS-80 Model 3 in the spring of 1980, and it came with a cassette uh, player. So we did not have disk drives for our TRS-80. We only had cassettes. Um, and so, of course, cassettes have um, you know limitations. Like you, there, it's uh, magnetic, and, and the magnetic part is exposed. So there are physical things that could hurt uh, a cassette. Also, they they warn you about putting it near magnets and things like that. Uh, but my dad had purchased from Radio Shack this large electromagnet. Uh, I remember it had a handle on top, and then the bottom was just like a big black box. And uh, so when he would get uh, cassette tapes that were used or something like that before he would use them, he would wipe these out. I think also if he was getting rid of old cassette tapes, he would do the same thing. But, um, but that's really the first time that I remember some sort of device being used to erase data other than the device that it is intended to use it. In other words, it's not like uh, putting a disc in a computer and then formatting the disc with that same computer. This is a secondary device. Um, this, you know, radio shack electromagnetic, maybe it was realistic, but, but uh, regardless, in fact, I looked um, on eBay and they still have some of those. I'm terrified of having those things around my computer <laughs> because I don't want to accidentally plug it in and, and not know the range or the distance or anything like that but um but yeah that's really the first device i remember seeing that was designed to destroy data off of electronic media now by the time we sold a few years later like two years later we sold the trs-80 we upgraded to the franklin ace 1000 the apple II clone and with that, we transitioned out of the world of cassette tapes and into the world of five and a quarter inch floppy disk, just like the rest of the computer world at that time. Um, and so the thing about floppy disks at that time, and, and so this was a concept that I learned very early, was that when you saved a program to a floppy disk, uh, there were two parts of that process. And this is oversimplifying it, but one part was the index that told the disk where the data lies. And the other part is actually where the data is stored on the floppy disk. So I always think of it as being similar to a library 
going in and, and using the Dewey Decimal System. So you have the card catalog that says, okay, this book is in this exact location, and then you could go to that location and get the book, which has much more data than than is stored in the card catalog. Now, the thing about it is if you – on early computer systems – and, and what I, I mean – no, I shouldn't even say early, but on many computer systems, if you deleted a file, it didn't delete. It didn't go back to the library shelf and pull the book off the shelf and shred it. All it did was took the card out of the card catalog and threw it away. So you're getting rid of the index that points you to the data, but the data was still back there on the shelf. So if the library bought a new book and someone took it back, they might take that old book off the shelf and then replace it with this new book. But at the moment you delete the file, that book is not thrown away. Now, we've discovered this innocently at first on the Commodore and the Apple when you would delete a file but if you went and looked with a sector editor, all the data was still there. The information was still there. And more importantly, if you were copying someone else's disks, if you did a fast, like a file copy, you only got the files. But if you nibbled the disk, which is copying every sector from one disk to another, you got a lot of that information as well. So... Just deleting a file, I mean, I learned very young that just by deleting a file didn't erase all the data. Now, I'm holding a five and a quarter inch floppy disk right here in my hand, and on the back of the sleeve uh, is a list of things not to do to this floppy disk. And I spent most of the 80s terrified that I would do one wrong thing and wipe out what was on this disc. Some of the things on here says, number one, always keep the disc in its protective sleeve. That makes sense. Uh, don't touch any of the exposed parts of the disc because there are oils and things on your fingers that could destroy uh, the media on the floppy disc. Uh, only use a soft felt tip pen when writing on the label. Um, I'm pretty sure I didn't do that. I'm pretty sure I used some <laughs> ballpoint pens, uh, and other things with writing. And mostly a lot of times I would write on the label before I stuck it on the disc and then put the disc, um, on there. Of course, there are warnings about heat. Heat can damage, uh, direct sunlight can damage, bending or folding the disc can damage. Uh, there's a spot in here that says, do not eat, drink, or smoke when you handle discs. One says, insert the disc carefully into the disc drive. And then, of course, the big one down here at the bottom, do not use or do not store the disc near magnets. Keep it away from magnetized objects. Um, you know, monitors, if you've ever seen inside a television, literally have a giant magnet in the back. Um, I remember when I got my first job in IT, someone told me that uh, there had been a lady who had accidentally erased a bunch of backups, uh, and it was because she had been storing her important backup disks uh, with a magnet and sticking it to the front of her computer. Uh, I think that's an urban legend. I don't think that's really something that happened at my work. I think uh, um, those kind of stories went around. That's like the the people using a, a CD 
player as a drink holder. I heard, I heard the same thing. So, um, so I was never really worried in the early days about erasing the data off of five and a quarter inch floppy disk because I thought, well, they're going to get ruined pretty quick. Look at this long list of ways that five and a quarter inch floppies will get ruined. Well, I think the joke was on us because right off the bat, I will tell you that I think that five and a quarter inch floppy disks have a much longer lifespan than three and a half inch floppy disks. I had lots of three and a half inch floppies that went bad over the years that were stored relatively well, like in um, temperature or climate controlled areas versus all my old Commodore 64 disks, which I had stored in uh, milk crates in my garage where it would get in the 90s during the summer and get freezing during the winter. And I had a much higher success rate reading data off of those five and a quarter inch floppies. So uh, I think they were a bit more resilient <laughs> than the back of the sleeves gave them credit. Now, there were floppy disks on occasion that I wanted to permanently get rid of. And the thing about floppy disks, again, when you would do all those things, like it would say, oh, you know, don't use a magnet. Well, I didn't have a magnet sitting right at my desk, so that wasn't an easy way to get rid of floppy disks. I'll give you an example. I had an old copy of my term program, and it had all passwords and things like that, and I upgraded to the new term program, and for some reason... I wanted to get rid of that disc. And so the easiest way to do that was to cut it in half with a pair of scissors. Now, I want to go back to that list that I talked about. Uh, number one, like the parent test, that 100% passes the parent test. My parents um, would not have been able to reattach two halves of a floppy disk uh, and, and read data off of it. So it definitely passes that. I think it also passes the technical and curious. I don't think I would be able to uh, reattach a floppy disk that had been cut in half. But for three-letter agencies and foreign governments, uh, I don't know. I don't know if they would be able to, maybe with um, some sort of electron microscope or something, if they would be able to read data uh, because the data is still there. It's just in a format that my disk drive could no longer read or anyone's disk drive could no longer read. So um, I feel like cutting those disks in half at the time, uh, you know, made them unreadable to most people, but that data um, technically was still there. So a lot of uh, these destruction techniques that I will be talking about uh, as I got older, and needed to start doing some of them for work, I would say that the old ones mostly don't scale well. I think if you needed to get rid of a five and a quarter inch floppy disk, you didn't want anybody to read it, and you cut it in fourths uh, with a pair of scissors, I would say you're 99.99999% uh, sure nobody's going to recover that data. Um, but if you had to do that to a thousand floppies, that's a pretty sucky solution. <laughs> I don't want to use a pair of scissors and cut a thousand floppy disks uh, into fourths. And so um, uh, there's, there's other ways to do that now to get rid of those. But uh, 
but back then, so like I said, if I had one disc, it, it worked, but it's not a solution that would have scaled. So I'm going to jump forward now to three and a half inch floppies. Now I had um, two large tubs of three and a half inch floppies. I had a ton of three and a half inch floppies and that came from running a BBS storing data. I would take that data and move it onto uh, backup tapes. And then eventually when I got a CD-ROM burner, I copied all those disks onto CD-ROMs. Uh, so I had just collected hundreds and hundreds of three and a half inch floppies, but I got to a point where I was not using them anymore. And, um, but they weren't the kind of thing I was comfortable with throwing away because who knows what's on those three and a half inch discs. Like I could look and it might say, you know, this game or that game or whatever, but I mean, maybe I saved a, you know, a text file that had people's phone numbers in one of them, or maybe I had saved passwords and like, I just didn't know. And I didn't want to go through hundreds and hundreds of floppies. Uh, and so, um, when I got rid of those floppies, uh, the first thing I did, well, <laughs> I'm going to get to a, uh, uh, a device I'll be talking about in a little bit. But by the time that I got rid of all my floppies, we had a degausser at work, which is a essentially a large elect electromagnetic um, platform that will uh, scramble the magnetic code on uh, magnetic media. And so what I did with those was a twofold process. Uh, number one, I would take the disks and one at a time, I mean, I had them in big stacks and I would run them across the degausser. Um, and, and you can't just set it there and then move it. You have to kind of move it around because it's got, uh, you know, a magnetic field. And, and what you're doing is moving a device around on top of the degausser. Uh, it's a very strong magnet and it's very, um, you have to be careful uh, about uh, uh, using it. But what I would do is, is uh, wipe you know, slide the discs across. And then when I was done, uh, I'd put on a pair of work gloves. I would slide it across. And when I was done, I would physically break the disc in half. Now, uh, I think I'd check two or three and I would do random checks and make sure that the discs were unreadable. Um, but I didn't want somebody messing with them later. I didn't want somebody to try to go in and look at the data. Uh, I just wanted that peace of mind to know that those discs were not going to be read again. So, uh, after I wiped each floppy disc, um, and, and by the way, I should say I was a hundred percent sure at that point that all the software on those discs had been backed up. So all of the old like BBS games and, and data and all that stuff for the nineties, I had backed up, uh, onto CDs and then onto a hard drive at that point. So there was no loss of data, but I just wanted the physical media gone. So again, I would wipe the disc across the degausser and then with a glove on, I would break the disc in half, squeeze it and break it in half and dump it in a trash can. And so, um, and then I took them to a trash compactor <laughs> because that's who I am. Um, so, uh, again, it, it was kind of a slow process, but I, 
I didn't want that uh, worry that comes with throwing discs in the trash and worrying that someone a lot like me might stumble across them and wonder what's on them and start spending some time uh, looking into those things. Now, after we had five and a quarter inch discs and three and a half inch discs, we began storing data on CDs and later DVDs. Uh, and so I had lots of data on CDs and sometimes I would find stacks of CDs um, of things. Now this was CDs. If you recall held um, 650, maybe a little bit more, but 650 meg uh, and, and DVDs were 4.7 gig. So you could put a lot of stuff on them, but once the price of hard drives dropped so dramatically, it was so much easier to just store data on hard drives. So I had burned lots and lots of uh, movies and files and backups and all these things uh, to CD. And then I got to a point where I didn't need the CDs anymore because all that data had moved uh, to hard drives. And so once again, I found myself uh, wanting to get rid of all these DVDs now um, and CDs, you know, at the time. Now, one thing you can do is scratch them. Everybody knows a scratch CD, you know, may or may not read, but uh, everybody I think has had a CD that had one or two minor scratches and we've all gone online and looked for these different cures. You know, maybe you, you buy one of those little, uh, monster resurfacing things. Uh, maybe you buy, uh, maybe you've tried fixing a CD with toothpaste, uh, and buffing or filling a scratch or with a banana peel. I've tried that one. So there's lots of techniques out there to try to restore data to make a scratched CD unreadable. And again, if, if that is a solution that doesn't scale well. Uh, so if you need to get rid of a lot of CDs, that, that's not a good solution. Now, I will tell you that at work, we subscribe to Microsoft TechNet, and every month we got these, uh, I want to say every month we got uh, like updates to TechNet, which was a huge library of CDs, and then quarterly, we got the whole library again. And, of course, nobody ever threw these away. So uh, we, we had a guy who was in charge of that. He left. And when we went up there to clean the area, there was literally, gosh, I'm trying to think of a realistic number, 2,000 CDs. And uh, it was our responsibility to destroy those CDs as we threw them away. So when you're trying to destroy 2000 CDs, you don't want to scratch 2000 CDs with your keys. <laughs> it's just not a good uh, solution. So we purchased a motorized CD shredder. Now this is didn't destroy the actual disc. When the disc came out on the other side, it still looked like a CD. It didn't smash it or do anything like that. Um, but what it did was basically uh, use motors and scrape this pattern into the bottom of the CD, which rendered it unreadable. I don't know that there's any way to recover the data off of those, but again, I mean, that passes the first two tests for sure. I don't know if it passes the third test. I don't know if it passes that the uh, uh, government, you know, uh, like a, or a three-letter agency. I don't know that if they are able to get data off a CD at that level or not. But, uh, but that's, that's what we used. 
Um, I did have a important CD one time. And when one of my children, when they were much younger, I had a, a child draw on the bottom of a CD with a Sharpie and I was never able to get that off. I tried everything I could figure out that would remove the Sharpie that wouldn't damage the CD. And I was, it wouldn't read it and it never worked again. I literally lost, um, a CD that I had important stuff on due to a Sharpie. So, um, I don't know if there's a, a good way to solve that, but that is something that I used to do, um, before I would, I would get rid of a CD. Um, now any, well, not any, but most shredders, like a paper shredder. I have a paper shredder in my office that says it will do up to 15 sheets of paper at a time. And it also says it will do CDs and DVDs. So if I had a CD today that I wanted to get rid of, I could literally put it in this shredder and it would shred it into little bits. Uh, and I, and that kind of leads us to that third level of security, which is destroying the media. So you know, even on a, what I refer to as level two, uh, if the media is still there and there's some remnants, then you never know uh, if there's some part of the data that could be recovered. But uh, when you've actually destroyed the media, when you put it into a shredder and the CD no longer exists, that takes you past that third level of security. And finally, about CDs, I would say, uh, under no circumstances should you try to break one with your hand. I have done it. It will send slivers and shards of CD pieces everywhere. It's very liable to cut your hand. Uh, it could send slivers into your eyeballs. Don't do that. <laughs> Don't manually break CDs in half. Not a good idea. Uh, so... Let's transition from that. Uh, I'm saving hard drives for last. Before we talk about hard drives, I want to talk about electronic devices. This is uh, your iPads, your iPhones, your Android phones. Um, all of these things have an option in them to reset to the factory default settings. Um, I don't really know how... Uh, internally, it does that. I don't know how it wipes the data, um, but I believe it is uh, good enough. And I don't know of any other tool, <clears throat> um, for example, like let's say for my that iPad that um, that I threw away. I only know of, of two options. One would be uh, to do a factory reset to completely wipe, uh, you know, through the GUI, there's an option to reset it to the factory default settings. And the other one would be to physically destroy the hardware. And you would have to destroy it, not just break the screen, because that's not getting rid of data. Um, you would have to find a way basically to pulverize it in some way uh, or burn it maybe, um, you know, to a point where it was, um, you know, uh, completely impossible to access, um, which is kind of a shame if you think about it. That hardware, obviously the stuff that's inside there, um, I mean, at the most basic level, can be recycled. Um, I, I would hope that there's some way that the actual device itself can be reused uh, in some other method. So uh, if you're actually destroying the device, you're getting rid of those uses. So I try not to do that in those cases. Um, when I get rid of a phone, something like that, that's what I do. I do reset to factory defaults uh, and I can sleep at night having done that. 
So finally, let's get to hard drives. I think hard drives are something that most people deal with. Most people have had to get rid of a computer or upgraded their hard drive uh, or had a laptop that was obsolete and wanted to get rid of an old computer system and thought, how can I wipe my data off the hard drive? Well, um, first of all, I would say... Along with with all these, I suppose, all these approaches, there are two different methods. There are software ways to wipe a hard drive, and then there are physical things you can do to a hard drive to make them unreadable. Uh, When I was younger, I would simply format the drive. I would format it one time and send it off. And now uh, we know that that is not good enough. that probably passes the first level test. It definitely doesn't pass the uh, the latter two. Um, somebody who's curious and wants to go dig around and look at your old data could definitely get information off that hard drive. If you have just used uh, Windows or a boot disk or something just to to format the drive, or maybe it was a, a secondary drive, you you hooked it up and formatted it. Um, there is still remnants of the data on that drive. So that really doesn't pass the tests. Um, the next thing you could do is, uh, a multiple layer format. Um, and the most, I think, well-known tool for that is something called D band. I've been using D band for at least 20 years. Um, I don't know how long it's been around, but D band stands for Derek's boot and nuke. Um, it is a bootable disc. You can boot up off this floppy disk and it will give you a set of options to choose from. And one of those is a DOD, which is the Department of Defense level wipe. Uh, the DOD wipe is seven layers. So if you know how at the very core magnetic media stores information, you have tiny, tiny, tiny microscopic bits uh, that are being flipped between ones and zeros uh, magnetically. And so uh, if you format, there's actually a lot of interesting um, uh, scientific information about this. I'm not going to go into it super deep, but let's say you have a hard drive and half the bits are ones and half the bits are zeros. Uh, When you format that drive, uh, there are forensic ways that they can look at that and see which one of those was flipped recently and which ones weren't. And based off that, they can determine which ones were most recently zeros and which ones were most recently ones. And using that information, they can recover information off of the drive. So, the concept behind DBAN is that it formats the drive and then overwrites it seven times. And each time it overwrites it, uh, the first time is with uh, zeros. So the whole drive is wiped uh, and written with zeros. And then it is wiped a second time with ones. And the third time is zeros. And the fourth time is ones. And the fifth time is zeros. So by the time you've done that seven times, there is no way to look at those bits and recover any information. They have been flipped and overwritten in a uniform fashion so many times that there's no way uh, on any level to recover that data. 
The problem with D-Ban is that, first of all, it takes a long time. Uh, I think it on a slower machine, it could take 24 hours to run. So if you're uh, have a machine and, and you know you decide to give it to somebody and then you go, well, I'm going to wipe that hard drive real quick. Well, you can't do it today. <laughs> it's going to take a while uh, to run. And so for a while, what I thought was a good solution, and I did this a couple of times, was uh, to encrypt the disk and then format it. So uh, there are lots of free disk encryption tools. There was TrueCrypt, which was free. Uh, Microsoft has um, BitLocker, which is free. Uh, so there's lots of free disk encryption uh, utilities. So by by default, if you encrypt a hard drive and remove it from that machine, it should be very, very difficult, if not impossible, to recover that data. Now, again, you do face uh, the, when you, not to the second level, not to the curious technical person, but to the third level, if the FBI comes to your house, uh, and, and takes you away in cuffs and says, we have this drive and now we want the password to decrypt it. Uh, if you have that information, they probably have ways to get it out of you. Maybe that's not the FBI. Maybe that's the CIA. Maybe it's somebody else. <laughs> Maybe it's somebody we don't know about. Um, but uh, yeah, if you have the information in your head, uh, then there are probably ways to extract that information. So I don't, uh, but if you do it in combination, if you were to encrypt it and then format it or something like that, then I feel like that's a pretty, pretty good level because if someone were to uh, use utilities to try to recover data, they would only be getting the encrypted information. And, and, uh, unless it's all there, I don't think it would be of any use or in any sort of readable fashion. So that's a fairly quick way, uh, to wipe hard drives. Now I kind of gave up on software formatting of hard drives. One, again, it doesn't scale well. Uh, we talked about that with cutting floppy disks and forth with scissors. Same thing for hard drives. If you're going to format every hard drive uh, for 24 hours, I don't, you know, it, uh, at work every year, uh, we cycle through 15 to 20,000 laptops that get accessed and they have to erase those hard drives. And so we, I can't take 20,000 machines uh, and let them run for 24 hours. It's just not feasible. So, uh, if you're scaling up, then you're probably looking at physical ways to, uh, erase hard drives. Now, uh, in a business setting, we can go back to the degausser you could degauss a laptop. It takes much longer to remove the hard drive from the laptop than it does to erase it with the degausser. I will tell you a funny story. The first time I used the degausser, uh, I was erasing those floppy disks and I leaned forward to get a floppy disk off of the degausser and I was wearing my security badge 
at work, which also has uh, encrypted information and gives me access not only to computers, but also to doors. And when I leaned forward, my badge flew off of my shirt. I mean, it was still attached to a lanyard, but it fell away from my body onto the degaussing uh, area and never worked again. I had to go get a PIV card replacement. So uh, it's probably a good idea if you're going to work around large magnetic erasing devices to remove uh, rings and jewelry and um, watch where your belt buckle is. And whatever you do, uh, don't have your uh, security PIV card <laughs> hanging over a magnetic area. Um so you probably don't have a degausser at your house. Degaussers are very expensive. Uh, we're talking thousands of dollars for the ones that we own. So when I get rid of hard drives at home, what do I do? Well, I've done a lot of things. I've formatted hard drives before I got rid of them. And, and I don't mean just to give them to somebody. If I'm going to throw one in the trash, I would format it, you know, and then get it because that hard drive's going in the trash. The trash is going to the landfill. I mean, that, that hard drive still exists um, in some fashion. So what can you do if you're trying to throw away an old hard drive and you want to get rid of that data? Well, number one, if you are a mechanical type person, uh, probably the quickest thing to do is to drill a hole through that hard drive. Uh, and if you do it right, you'll go through the motherboard on the bottom side. Now this, uh, is, does damage essentially irreparable damage on many levels. So first of all, uh, if you've know the inside of a hard drive, if you've seen inside a hard drive, you know uh, that it has these platters and the platters contain information. So, uh, you can drill a hole through the hard drive into those platters. Uh, but you're not just, damaging the platter uh, because when that drive spins up anything that's inside that drive um, will damage those platters in fact when hard drives are assembled i'm sure you know they're done in clean rooms because a speck of dust can damage a hard drive when it spins up so if it is full of metal shavings <laughs> you're going to have a hard time spinning that drive up and reading information. Uh, the other part of that process is uh, if you've ever had a hard drive that has died, um, one of the last resorts, if it's the electronics that have died on that drive, one of your last resorts is purchasing an identical hard drive, disassembling that new drive, and then in a clean room environment, moving the platters from uh, the, the entire spindle, from the bad hard drive to the good new donor hard drive, and then resealing that up. But it has to be the exact match. Now, I am sure that uh, those three-letter agencies probably have access or could get access to uh, specific models of hard drives, but most people don't have access to that. So, uh, if you take that drive and you damage the board, uh, even if someone were somehow to get those platters out, they would have to find an identical, uh, hard drive to be able to, to, um, to do that. Now, sometimes I don't, uh, do that. 
if I'm not, uh, it, it's kind of difficult to do with a hand drill. It's much easier to do with a drill press. It's kind of messy. You're going to have metal shards flying around. You need to wear eye protection and hand protection, all those things. Um, so if you don't have access to that, the other thing that I will do is uh, uh, encrypt a drive and then format it. And then when I'm done with that, I will pull the hard drive out. I will stick a flat tip screwdriver up underneath the, the motherboard and pry it up. <laughs> I will break that motherboard in half <laughs> and throw the hard drive in most uh, most of it away in one trash can and then wait till the next week and throw the parts in the other half uh, of the trash can a week apart. Uh, that that is pretty a pretty good uh, pretty secure system. Uh, you would have to be someone would have to be pretty dedicated at that point. And then at that point, you got to think, what are you throwing away? <laughs> like if you're throwing away something that doesn't past that test, you probably shouldn't be getting advice on my podcast. You should probably have some other system in place. Um, now, at work, because we do uh, drive destruction on a, a mass basis, uh, we don't just degals you know, a couple of drives or hundreds of drives, we have to destroy thousands of hard drives. Uh, a lot of the hardware gets donated uh, to nonprofit organizations. It goes up for auction. We cannot let those hard drives out of our presence. And so in our basement of our building, we have a hard drive shredder. Now, if you've never seen one of these, uh, it is almost hypnotizing in its beauty if it weren't so loud and scary. Uh, to watch it work is amazing, uh, but a little terrifying. It is a series of metal grinding gears that overlap, uh, and there is a section in the front where you open the section and you insert hard drives and close it. Uh, this is the type of machinery that requires keys to be turned and buttons and for it to be started. It almost sounds like a diesel engine running. There's a big loud noise. Um, and then you put hard drives into it and you hear it go yum, 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 yum like that. Uh, it's very loud and scary. And then when there's no more noise, you can open up this little, uh, and by the way, I want to, I want to paint the picture. This thing is probably six foot wide and maybe four foot tall and three foot deep. So, I mean, it like a very, very large copier, maybe two large copiers side by side. It is a big piece of machinery. Uh, and when it is done grinding away, after a few, there is a bucket towards the bottom that you can pull out. And when you pull it out, you will see tiny metal pieces that are barely recognizable as being parts of a hard drive. Uh, and all the hard drive parts have been mixed together at that point. Uh, not everybody has access to one of those machines. I will grant you that. But uh, if you had a hard drive that you wanted to disappear that's probably your best bet. That passes uh, every level that I could possibly think of. I don't think anybody on the planet could reassemble that and get any information off of a completely shredded drive uh, that has been done that way. I will uh, throw in just a 
random story. I looked for this online and I couldn't find it, but I definitely remember hearing about some sort of crime that was solved uh, because a laptop was pulled from the bottom of a lake. So someone had thrown a laptop into a lake and they got the laptop out and the laptop was obviously ruined, uh, but they were able to get the hard drive out of the laptop and get some information about a crime. If you can find that story, shoot me a link to that because I definitely remember hearing about that on the news or possibly forensic files, a show like that, but I just couldn't find uh, any reference to that news story. But uh, so a lot of things that people think are good ways to destroy hardware are not good ways to destroy hardware. Um, So again, I would say um, if you can, you know, do a DOD level wipe, uh, encrypt the data, possibly format it. Those are good solutions. If you are able to physically destroy the data uh, device or container uh, in such a way that it cannot be reassembled, then that is the best solution. Uh, I will add a caveat that DBAN no longer works on SSD drives. Um, and I don't, I believe it, that's the same. It also applies for um, SD cards. Uh, so there are other tools out there now. I use G parted, which is the letter G and then the word parted, like parted the Red Sea, G parted, uh, which is a free utility you could download and boot. You put it on a USB stick or a CD and you boot off of that and it boots you into a, uh, a, a GUI Linux environment that has a few options there. There is a more advanced, uh, maybe not advanced, but um, possibly more streamlined or easy to, easier to use solution called Parted Magic, which is based on the same technology, which is not free. I believe a license for Parted Magic is $50 a year. Uh, but Gparted has served me well. Uh, in fact, when, when we send drives back and forth, uh, at work, when we need to do something, what I will do is encrypt the drive, uh, then format it and then delete the partition. And I figure that is, uh, uh, pretty good for, for mailing a drive, uh, through the, through the mail to return it, return to sender that way. The last thing I will talk about is those three levels, you know, and so when I was younger, I always thought about those three levels of security, you know, like an innocent person and then a curious person and then a government agency, you know, so those three levels of security. And I would wipe old media depending on where it was going. So if I was going to um, give discs to a friend of mine, three and a half inch discs, like recycle them, I would just format them and give them to my friend because he's not going to dig through and look for stuff. Um, But if I were selling it at a garage sale, you know, I might do something different versus that. But um, over time, when I have to get rid of old media, old hard drives, old CDs, old floppy disks, things like that, uh, what I realize is when you get rid of them, you also lose access to the chain of command. In other words, you can format a floppy and give it to not that anybody uses floppies, but um, go with me format a floppy and give it to your friend. But then if your friend gives it to someone who is one of those tech savvy people, now you 
didn't destroy the data well enough to to survive that level of attack. So and you have no control because your friend now gave it away, right? So that's uh the thing. So I often think about like those zip disks that I bought that had company data on it. I don't think anybody that ran a company would intentionally take all that information and donate it to a thrift store. But what if that person gave it to someone else and said, Hey, will you get rid of this information or will you wipe these discs? And then that person didn't do it for whatever reason. And then they got donated and so on and so forth. So once you have lost control, again, you're, you've let go of that chain of custody. You don't really know. So, um, you have to kind of assume the worst. Um, now, all of this being said, I know a lot of this sounds very uh, espionage-related and cloak-and-dagger. Uh, I would say that I would weigh the amount of effort that I was putting into the destruction of these things when getting rid of them. I would balance it with what has been stored on them. I have uh, a lot of CDs that I got rid of that had MP3s on them. So there's really nothing untoward on them. There's no personal data. There's no PII. There's no anything like that. So when I got rid of those, uh, I ran them through the shredder and then I tossed the discs away. That, that was good enough. I'm not really worried about, you know, somebody, I mean, the worst, the absolute worst possible scenario is someone where was, would be able, uh, to recover, some MP3s and then be forced to listen to some of the newer Metallica albums, which nobody should be forced to sit through. So anything past the black album. Bleh. <laughs> All right. Bad, bad off the cuff joke, but, uh, but you get what I'm saying. Uh, I, I think, um, uh, you know, I would, I would weigh it to, um, if I were getting rid of SD cards that I've only used in my camera for storing pictures and all those pictures have been posted online, I'm not really worried about somebody recovering that. So if I were to wipe one of those um, or cut it in half or something, then then I could, uh, I, again, sleep at night doing that. So, But that's uh, what it boils down to for me at the end is it's not how much do I trust uh, the person I'm giving it to. It's how much do I trust the person that they may be giving it to. That wraps up another episode of You Don't Know Flack. If you have feedback about this or any episode of the show, you can always email me directly at Rob O'Hara at robohara.com. Join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash robcasts. Follow me on Twitter at Commodore. Come chat with me on the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord or leave me a message on the podcast hotline, which is 405-486-YDKF. If you'd like to support my shows, visit my Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara. All of my patrons get access to behind-the-scenes blog posts, weekly videos, access to the Amigos Retro Gaming Discord server, and other additional perks. To find out more, visit my page. Again, that is patreon.com forward slash Rob O'Hara. You Don't Know Flack is available on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and the RSS feed at podcast.robohara.com. To hear more podcasts from me like Sprite Castle, Cactus Flax, Like a Doss, Throwback Reviews, and Multiple Sadness, visit podcast.robohara.com for links and information about these shows. Congratulations. If you made it this far, you now know a little bit more about Flack. We'll see you here next time.
finally, this podcast would not be possible without the support of listeners like these. Thanks to my 8-Bit supporters, Alan Hennessy, Alan Hudgens, Armadon Restel, Brian Barr, Chris Folds, C-Dubs, Cowbird Boy, Dan Paradroid Heavey, Daniel Jaleppa, Dave Velociraptor, Dave Zilly, David Hearn, David Modelak, Eric Strainisi, Extent of the Jam, Gabe DeGenero, Garrett Allier, Gary Heather, Hacker Radio, Jake Nonamaker, Jason Warns, John Motocar Schaller, John Treholt, Jose Cazada, Joshua Ekroff, Mark Alley, Matthew Perron, Mike McLaughlin, Mitsuyama, Mr. Bundy, Nathan Dagenhardt, Olaf Hope, Patrick Markey, Paul Morano, Petzl, KZ9Zap, Rad Max, Rydar and Christopher Bow, Retrotrace, Robbie Ray, Robot Doctor 82, Scooter Prime, Scott Lambert, Scott Meredith, Scrap Arcade, Stephen Burt, Steve Rasmussen, The Slow Norris, Travis Gossie, Zeke Pabsky, Zerfall, and The Mysterious Cobra Kai. Extra special thanks to my 16-bit supporters. Bill Spear, Boathead Tavern BBS, Dan Creek, Drone Doctor, Edward Smith, Graham W. Vebke, Joe Sharippa, John Morrison, Matt Nicholson, Matt Smith, Michael Ryan, Paul Nermix Nermanen, Rick Reynolds, Scott Van Drasen, Steve Sharippa, Vintage Volts, and Mr. Wacky. <laughs>